Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Kathy Buckman. And today we're talking about season three, episode one of Ted Lasso, Smells Like Mean Spirit. And before we speak about the episode, I just want to note that if you have been listening along in order, you'll note that we have not covered the last two episodes of season two, but we will be going back and covering those. We just wanted to get out ahead a little bit. A number of the episodes of this season has been released and we wanted to address them. All right. So Smells Like Mean Spirit. This is obviously a play on Smells Like Teen Spirit, the famous song by Nirvana. And Kathy, do you remember where you were when you first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit? I definitely remember being quite taken with it. I don't have a specific memory, though. Do you? I have a very specific memory of being at a party and saying... The person I was with, what is this? <laughs> and it's funny because I actually had already seen Nirvana in concert the previous year, but it's sort of, I think the moment of hearing smells like teen spirit is our uh, Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely got everyone's attention. That's for sure. And uh, I like the play here on the title because we will be talking about some mean spirited people. Certainly. We've spoken a few times about how Ted Lasso likes to engage in misdirection, showing us deceptive cuts, for example, between characters to imply a relationship that maybe doesn't really exist as we might assume. And here we start with a close of, of Ted at London's Heathrow Airport, and we hear the final boarding call to the Kansas City flight. We seem in a tight close-up, and we'll remember that season two began and ended with a very tight close-up of Nate, indicating that it was going to be his season. And in this tight close-up, he's looking glum. And we assume, or I did, that he is going back to the U.S. I'm not quite sure why he's unhappy. And we see a text from Michelle, his now ex-wife, I believe, saying, have a safe flight, I love you, which is even more confusing. And then we hear a page for Passenger Lasso. And only now do we pull back to a wider shot that shows that his son, Henry, is seated next to him. The text is for Henry and... As Ted leads Henry off to take the flight, Henry gives Ted a tiny Lego English Premier League trophy. Just until you win the real one, he says. You never know, right? Ted replies noncommittedly. Yeah, and it's sort of funny, the product placement here. Ted also says, I hope you have a lot of movies loaded up on your iPad. So the Apple branding continues, though I think the Lego thing is a freebie. Another quick note here, a very subtle thing, but one of the other flights mentioned over the paging system is to Amsterdam, and they are apologizing for its delay. And this may be a stretch, but I'm not sure. This season of Ted Lasso was delayed, and supposedly one of the reasons, at least partially for the delay, was of difficult filming that took place in Amsterdam. And I just wondered if this wasn't a little call out to that fact. It could definitely be an Easter egg. And let's watch for other references to the Netherlands as we move forward. By the way, as always, Kathy and I aren't all the way ahead. We've watched a couple episodes. In the cab ride home, Ted calls Dr. Sharon for support in this moment. And their subsequent conversation becomes this kind of nice voiceover for what's kind of a montage of Ted coming home and cleaning up all the signs of Henry's visit. And he wonders to her, you know, what the heck is he still doing here? Is he doing more hurt than good? And this is a line that he will repeat later in the episode with Speaking with Beard. But in this moment, Dr. Sharon cites the German romantic writer and philosopher Goethe, <laughs> really surprisingly, 
Doubt can only be removed by action. The montage ends with a shot of Sharon returning to her room, to her bedroom, and we see a young man in her bed. And this is quite a bit of a surprise, right? Because the entire last season was one in which she seemed very distant for quite a long time, very professional, but we don't really know about her until the door cracks open just a little bit towards the end of that season. And now we're just thrown in. We're going to see another side of Dr. Sharon, it seems like, in this season. After the credits, we see Rebecca and Higgins and Ted discussing how all the soccer pundits predict that Richmond, and as you'll remember, they're newly returned to the Premier League, that they'll finish last. And Rebecca notes that Rupert's new club, West Ham, is predicted to finish in the top four. Rebecca and Higgins suggest they need some new firepower, but Ted responds that the team is gelling and they'll do just fine. And here again, we see kind of the standard Ted inclusive leadership playing out against others' higher expectations. Rebecca reminds him that he had, remember, at the end of the very first season, promised her not just to get into the English Premier League, but to win the whole thing. In the clubhouse, we see the team as well reacting to their predicted doom at the hands of the press. And we have to love Jan Moss, the Dutch player who always speaks very transparently reminding them that statistically, most teams who get promoted are relegated the very next year, which the team doesn't love. I think this is kind of a funny conversation that anyone who has worked, for example, in a startup has had. Well, you know, the base rate for startups isn't good. Most startups will fail. And yet the whole point of a startup is bucking those odds. As the sign says, believing. Yeah. And I think we also have to recognize that we are in the frame of a fictional narrative. And fictional narratives love the Cinderella story. They love the team that triumphs against the odds. Even though logic and reason would tell you that a recently promoted club is going to have a bad season, we're primed as viewers to expect that maybe the Cinderella story is what's going to happen in this season. Yeah. Interestingly, Coach Beard is reading a book, The Miracle of Castel di Sangro, by Joe McGinnis. Now, Joe McGinnis is probably best known for his true crime books. For example, Fatal Vision is probably his most famous, and many of them have been turned into like TV movie of the weeks back in the day. But here, this book is actually about his going in the late 90s, going to a very small, not super successful town in the middle of Italy that somehow magically has made its way up from the lower levels of Italian soccer to reach the second tier of Italian soccer, the B League, just below Serie A. So this book obviously has a lot of thematic relationship to the story of Richmond in, in this season. Yeah, indeed. The books that Beard reads are always thematically significant. We'll be talking about that more this season for sure. The coaches meet, and Roy suggests that they play a classic 4-4-2, which is four players on defense, four midfielders, and two up front. And Roy suggests that this is a safe bet when you're the underdog, because this is something that many players are taught from their first time they play 11-on-11 soccer. It also fits nicely with, and this will become important as the season goes on, it also fits nicely with the fact that they have two aces. They have Danny and Jamie, who play up front, two great strikers. We then cut to Nate pulling into the West Ham lot, parking lot, parking his green Mini Cooper amongst the pricey sports car. And all this is to Eric B. and Rakim's follow the leader. And this seems to be somewhat ironic because the leadership style that Nate is, is showing is the anti-lasso style. In the very uh, 
contained office he has at West Ham compared to the open office, for example, that Coach Lasso has with literally a door and a window and people popping in and out. It's very shut down and Nate chases away anyone who tries to enter his office. It really suggests that he's not going to have the kind of connection that Ted had with his players. And of course, he spends most of his time in his office, not doing the work of being a coach, but staring at Twitter and trying to get these quick hits of confirmation for his supposed Bundekindness, his supposed genius. Yeah, we're going to talk more about the style that Nate shows as a leader at West Ham. But right now, I think the only thing I want to call out is Nate staring at his phone, looking at Twitter for mentions of himself. He relies on what I would say are external sources of confidence. Your confidence can come internally or it can come externally. And Nate really goes for that external sources of confidence, which is surprising. You'd think at this point he would be feeling more internally confident, given that he's just been given a big promotion. And boy, does Rupert understand this. So he's called out from the pitch where we see him denigrating players, called into Rupert's office. They both mock Richmond's prospects in the season. And then Rupert starts that seductive thing, the thing that Rebecca talked about, how he won her over back in the day. They didn't know what they had letting you go, he tells Nate. I know you'll make me proud. I believe in you. And this is exactly what he needs. And of course, what's happening here is in many ways, Nate was looking for a father figure in Ted who provided in a very particular way in the first season and Nate felt withdrew a bit. And here he gets the other kind of father, this seductive father with bad intentions. Yeah, we'll talk about that more. And then one last workplace. We see Rebecca visiting Keeley in Keeley's new office. You'll remember how Keely had started her own PR firm with outside backing. We had previously spoken in our discussion of No Weddings at a Funeral about Keely's observations of the feelings you have to display at a funeral, that they seem unnatural. And we related that to how you generally have to put on a particular face with your colleagues at work. And in this very first scene that we see at Keely's new office, we see this issue on display. When Rebecca arrives, Keely screams in the middle of her office, kind of, wow, Rebecca. And this seems to put off the other seemingly quite restrained workers. Yeah, there is a real dour mood in this office that Keeley is now part of. It's not at all Keeley's style, and it doesn't seem to bode well for her ability to bond with and lead this new team. Once Keeley and Rebecca are in Keeley's enclosed office proper, Keeley obscures the window with a push of button, which apparently was installed by the former pervy leaseholder. But Keely uses it to cry daily, it seems. She is so busy, she has to schedule her crying. We could talk about crying at work and the privacy that you need if you're going to do it privately. You can also cry in front of other people at work, which I can say I have done, and it is pretty uncomfortable. What about you, Mike? What are your experiences with crying at work? I have to say that I often found it hard. Back in my days teaching, I found it very hard. And when I was working, I found it very hard. I often found myself saying, hey, can you come back, you know, a bit later, implicitly when you're better composed? I really couldn't deal with it. I don't know. I hope I would be better today. Yeah, you probably need to get better because in our Brene Brown world where people are told they need to bring their whole selves to work and it's okay to be vulnerable, I think crying at work or at least 
talking about crying at work is something that people are going to feel more and more comfortable doing. Yeah, the whole range of emotions, I think. Some are less acceptable at work, like anger, like extreme anger, and some are probably more acceptable at work today. The emotional landscape of the workplace is changing, I think. Yeah, I agree. Rebecca will go on to confess to Keeley that while she isn't that worried that the pundits are picking them last, she is a bit worried that Ted isn't worried enough. Keeley advises, and here we see that the advice is flowing both ways now. You got to let Ted be Ted. Yeah, this feels like it's referring back to an issue we've talked about frequently in our discussions of the previous seasons. Ted has an inclusive leadership style that's focused on developing people. And sometimes that comes at the cost of a focus on performance and winning. But what Keeley seems to be saying when she says, let Ted be Ted, is that she seems to be implying that asking Ted to be anything else besides Ted would be a mistake and have downsides. And maybe indirectly, she's implying that she has faith that his style may actually work. Rebecca is also very concerned that Rupert is coming out ahead in all this. And this is a, a surprising threat to me, at least, that we will see this season, that despite all the growth we've seen in Rebecca, Rupert is, as Keely says, quite stuck in her head. However, Rebecca says that while old Rebecca, as it were, wanted to destroy everything Rupert loved, the now me just wants to beat him. That's growth, right? Yeah. Uh, and and Keely takes her view to yet another level. She says, yeah, but sometimes you got to let Rupert be Rupert. I think Keely, once again, is being pretty wise here. I would say that we can all see that Rebecca is falling back into her own pattern. She has this reactive tendency to become a less evolved version of herself whenever it's anything to do with Rupert. And by reactive tendency, what I think I mean is that she behaves in ways that it doesn't feel like she is intentionally choosing. It feels as if she is reacting without intention. It feels like the reaction is controlling her. And what I think Rebecca is trying to do is draw a little bit of a line here, right? She's splitting hairs. She's saying, well, at least I'm not reactively trying to destroy the things he loves. At least maybe I'm slightly intentionally choosing to be competitive with him. So maybe this is progress, maybe it isn't. But I think we all can agree that Rebecca continues to be controlled on some level by the antipathy she feels for Rupert. I would like to note that we do have a new character, Barbara, who has been installed as CFO, Chief Financial Officer. You know, it's very interesting where Keely dresses in these bright skirts. Barbara is wearing dark colored, very much more conventional business wear. And uh, she comes right after Keely's weekly spending on flowers. I bring this up because we're going to see Barbara's character play out further. And she's also an indicator. You do take backing from somebody else. They may not install a minder in your company, but you do feel something of a responsibility to them. It's not just your company at that point. You're responsible to your shareholders as well. And I can say this is somebody who's had startups and has taken investment is that you do feel that. Back on the practice pitch, when Ted hears that the players are all obsessed with the pundits picking them to finish last, he decides on what he calls a field trip. He takes them to the London sewer. Now, this may seem a little surprising, but this is an amazing work of architectural and engineering genius. And it's hard to imagine modern, huge modern London without it. As many writers have noted, and I'll put a link to Stephen Johnson's The Ghost Map, if you'd like to read a really well-written, interesting, fairly brief story of this. 
cholera was the great scourge of Victorian London, killing large numbers of people, driving the populace from the city, and just generally being super disruptive. And the cure for cholera, after a lot of consideration on the part of many different doctors and scientists, was keeping human waste out of the drinking water. Seems obvious to us now, but it wasn't to them then. The team reacts, as you might expect, to being brought into a sewer. But Ted is demonstrating a very embodied metaphor. We'll talk more about this. As Jamie says, they are surrounded by poopay. Ted says that they are surrounded by a bunch of poopy, but up there too, up there in the world as well. Your brains are locked up by other people's dookies, says. You all need to make an internal sewer system within your cells and then connect to each other's tunnels and help each other keep that flow. He says, if you have a crisis of confidence, borrow some of Jamie's. If you're feeling down, get some Danny in your life. Yeah, I really like this metaphor. So I want to talk about this more. And what we have now are competing visuals online that people are watching and some intercutting that reminded me a bit of the interweaving stories of Rebecca and Ted regarding the betrayals of their fathers back in No Weddings and a Funeral in season two. Rupert brings out Nate, the Wonder Kid, to do the press conference for West Ham. And of course, there's always a press conference, it seems, in Ted Lasso. After some initial stumbles, in a sense, in some ways, the old Nate we remember, the kind of halting, hesitating, unsure of himself, Nate appears. He briefly pulls himself under the desk and he has a flashback. It reminded me of the flashback that Ted has near the end of season two in his final panic attack. But in this case, Nate sees himself being abused as the kitman club attendant at Richmond. And then we see the picture with his own writing, thanking Ted for his mentorship. And remember, Ned feels that Ted neglected him, no longer mentored him after a while. And then even a shot of Nate's own father looking out over his newspaper. And we know that his father has made it clear that he's not been impressed by Nate's showboating. All scenes that I think raise the specter of resentment on Nate's part. And then he spits. And this is an action we've seen him take throughout season two. It sort of gears him up. And he often spits on himself in the mirror. It really has these undertones of self-loathing. The spitting's rejecting of who he is in favor of this other person he'd like to be. And out of this sort of psyching himself up, he rises and becomes very aggressive with the press. One reporter basically brings up the kind of the exact imagery we just saw Nate relive about his role back in Richmond. And he attacks that reporter. And then he rolls out this one-liner that he had basically practiced with Rupert. The reason that Richmond is being ranked 20th, the last of all the teams in the EPL, is because there is no 21st. And upon seeing this image of the Richmond team going into the London sewer, Nate suggests that they have to train in a sewer because their coach is so shitty. And so the attack is not just on Richmond, it's actually on the person of Ted Lasso. This is such an important scene, and we'll talk about the spitting thing later, but it really is a moment of betrayal on so many levels. And I think that we as viewers feel like this is Nate crossing some kind of line that he's never going to be able to come back from. When the team returns to the clubhouse to only discover Nate's disparaging comments, Ted thinks he'll have to step in and speak to them. But Coach Beard holds them back as Jamie actually steps up and says, remember, it's just poopay. Let it flow. And we'll talk about this moment. It's this great moment where 
the metaphor is working. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Other people are picking it up and running with it. Still, Rebecca isn't happy. She wants Ted to respond to Nate. He doesn't want to. Everyone is laughing at us, Ted, she says. Rupert is laughing at me, Ted. Please fight back, she begs. And now we have our second press conference. And this is a tour de force, I think, for the lasso way. Ted starts by answering kind of in his folksy manner. When asked directly about Nate's comments, he says he found them hilarious. And Rebecca looks gutted as he goes on to praise Nate for both his attack on Richmond as well as Nate's coaching skills. I wish them the best of luck, he says. And then the turn. And I think this moment is kind of reminiscent of the darts game with Rupert in the first season where we have a sudden turn and the situation is different than we imagined. Ted has strength in a place where he seemed to have weakness. He's surprised that Nate couldn't come up with better, Ted says. For example, he's a dumb American. And he goes into this sort of, I'm so dumb. And he has to teach the reporters how to say, how dumb are you? In response. And it becomes this sort of moment of laughter. They're engaged. They're not suffering at the hands as they did Nate's conference. They're part of the joke. They're not laughing at Ted. They're laughing with Ted. He goes on with comments about his coaching abilities, even his panic attacks. And this litany of self-deprecation shows how much more comfortable he is with his place than Nate's forced aggression. And to Nate's disgust, Twitter agrees. Yeah, self-deprecating humor can be so powerful. I honestly think in real life, self-deprecating humor can backfire pretty badly when you're working with bullies. But in this case, it really is the perfect expression of the Ted Lasso style to be classy and complimentary and never stoop to the level of those who would denigrate you. And we should note that as he drove in his green Mini Cooper, he leaves with a brand new Aston Martin that has been given to him by Rupert. You will remember that Ted bought Nate a suit and his fatherish kind of role here one step further, right? Rupert is buying him an Aston Martin. He's converting him. And because there's never enough storytelling in Ted Lasso, we have yet another scene. And this is a scene in which Roy and Keeley tell Phoebe, Roy's niece, that they are breaking up. It's implied because Roy feels neglected due to Keeley's work schedule, which she told Rebecca was quite packed. And he also may be feeling some pressure from Nate's departure that he's not handling. I like the way that Keely and Roy handle this. It's also structurally the way the news is being conveyed to us as the viewers. We're the stand-in for Phoebe, and we're hearing the news that she's hearing. And Phoebe gets to ask all the questions that we might ask, like, you know, why? <laughs> why yeah. are you doing this? And expressing the disbelief that maybe we're feeling as well. I think you're being stupid, she tells Roy. As we'll see, everyone does. Before Ted gets back to his flat, he once again asks Beard, why are we here? And the answer, I think, comes in the conversation he will have with Henry right after. Back in his flat, the loop closes on the whole episode. It started with Ted and Henry in the airport, and here now Ted FaceTimes Henry, who's at home. And in this incredible 90 seconds that both closes out the particular episode and opens up three arcs that are probably going to be crucial to the entire season. When Ted shows Henry the Richmond Lego set, his son asks why Nate's minifigure is set off to the side, not near Ted. 
Ted says that Nate is no longer part of the team. And his son asks, well, can't they still be friends? And Ted moves the Nate figure near the Ted figure. It's hard not to see this foreshadowing, almost the inevitable arc of the season. We know that Nate and Ted are on opposite sides in many ways. Nate's attacking Ted. It's hard not to feel that one of the things that's going to drive Ted staying in London and doing something is to repair this rift. It's just what Ted does. And then we have another lasso moment. His son reminds Ted that, as he promised Rebecca in the first season, he is there to win the whole thing. And when Ted says, as he did sort of in the airport non-committally, well, winning it ain't everything, his son says, but you gotta try, right? We always have to try, Ted replies. And this really raises the stakes for the season. Both Richmond's football season and this season of Ted Lasso, they gotta at least try to win. That's another reason Ted is staying. And finally, the call finishes with his son showing his Thanos Infinity Gauntlet toy given to him by Jake, mommy's friend, he tells Ted. And as the siren from Beyonce's Ring the Alarm rises in the background, we feel that this may well be the reawakening of Ted's panic attacks. Wow, what an episode. I am so excited to have a new episode of Ted Lasso to look at. It feels to me like if you look at the arc of the three seasons, season number one was about losing. Season number two was about tying. And maybe, just maybe, season number three is going to be about winning. Mm, we shall see. So, Kathy, what themes do you see that are relevant to our interest in leadership and adult learning? So here we are in season three, and we're going to continue our examination of Ted Lasso from the perspective of what it's like to work in a workplace and how you can learn and grow in the process. So there are three things that I think are worth talking about in this episode. Number one, I'd like to talk about new roles and new workplaces and the growing pains that come with both of those things. So in this episode, we see that both Keely and Nate have moved up a level. And whenever you move up a level, in an organization, you need to adjust your style. So this is a common challenge for people at work. The first time that you move into a position of authority is a really consequential transition. And I think all of us could use some support making that transition. Because if you think about it, you probably got the promotion because you were making great contributions as an individual contributor. But you are no longer valued for your own contributions. You now need to orchestrate the contributions of others. And this is a big shift. There is no guarantee that anybody has the skills to do this just because they got the promotion for the contributions they were making as a solo operator. Oh, yeah. That, obviously, the move there is enormous. So let's start talking about Keely. What's interesting, I think, about her version of this transition is that she is not only just a new manager, she's also a new leader. And this is a crucial transition and a big jump to do both of these things all at once. So back in season two, episode eight, Man City, on this podcast, we talked about the difference between management and leadership. They are not the same thing. And Keeley is going essentially from individual contributor to a role that includes elements of both managing and leading. 
So I'm going to say no wonder she's crying in her office. This has got to be stressful. It is a huge thing to be on her shoulders. So if you think about it, as a manager, she needs to bond with her team and understand their needs and support them so that they can perform so she can get the most out of them as a team. As a leader, she needs to set direction for her new company, figure out what they're about and how they're going to do it. So this is a very heavy load to bear. And honestly, it doesn't seem like she's off to that great of a start, though it gives her room to grow, but it doesn't look like it's starting out all that well. Yeah, it definitely seems like her style is just not jiving with the style of the rest of the office. The rest of the office feels really like a little bit like the office, both the British and the American office, where the workforce maybe isn't quite as engaged as the boss is uh, in what's going on. Yeah. And what skills does Keeley have for engaging with creating an office culture, nurturing a group of people to feel committed to each other and bonded? I'm going to assume she doesn't necessarily have any training in this, though her intuitive ability to deal with people might serve her well. But right now, it looks like it's going to be an uphill climb. Yeah, it's a great example of how having excellent EQ does not automatically mean that you're going to know how to lead a group of people towards a common goal in the business setting. That, in fact, is a skill that has to be learned in some sense, either through mentorship and or through experience. Yeah, I completely agree. And in fact, it's harder for people with strong EQ when they start to struggle to lead people because they feel like it's something they should be good at. Right. So yeah, Keely has my empathy at this point. All right. Now let's talk about Nate. Nate is making a transition here from a pretty junior role or a role where he was a member of a team being led by Ted, who set the tone. Now he's the top guy. He's the lead coach. So he gets to decide what his leadership style is going to be. And as we said previously, as we were recapping the episode, it seems to me that he has landed on a style that we would describe as just plain mean, right? It seems like he's going to use humiliation, calling people out, making them feel shame as the way he's going to motivate them to be better soccer players. The anti-Ted in all respects. Now, Will it work? I debate this inwardly all the time as to whether the mean style can work. I think it can. Very obviously it can. And is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. But it's definitely the style that Nate seems to have landed on. I think there's a lot of questions of whether it works for a short period, whether it works not necessarily with the best performers. And then finally, I think there's a question about whether or not it's as acceptable in today's workplace as it was. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, I think things are changing pretty dramatically, especially with young people, the kind of people that play on soccer teams. I think there's a moment where Ted basically says to someone who suggests that his a trip to the sewer is a little strange, you know, like he says, your generation seems to embrace this openness this way, and I'm learning to appreciate it. So yeah. this is another sign that Ted is adjusting to some of the changing landscape of the workplace. Yeah, that is so fascinating because I think that Nate is positioned in the logic of the show as maybe being younger than Ted, though I don't know if that's really the case. But you would think that Nate would embrace the younger generation style of being more inclusive, less abusive, but clearly not. 
But let me talk a little bit about the spit thing. I think that the spit thing is maybe our indication that this isn't truly Nate, that Nate has to get himself psyched up to be into this mode, that there's something about Nate that maybe feels some ambivalence and needs the spitting ritual as a way of getting into this purely mean mode. I think there's a lot going on. There's layered stuff about Nate here, but it is obvious from season three, episode one, that off the starting block, Nate is looking for a mean-spirited coaching style. All right, so that brings us to theme number two. Theme number two for me in this episode is mentorship and Rupert as Nate's new mentor. And honestly, what does this say about mentorship? So if Ted was acting as Nate's previous mentor, recognized Nate's talent, pulled him under his wing, helped him out, bought him the suit, all these things... It is clear that Rupert is now taking over that role. You really get the sense that Rupert is now grooming Nate to be his number two and to operate as his right hand. And Rupert just has a different value system. It's almost as if, and many people have pointed this out, that there is a Star Wars analogy going on here where Rupert is kind of the Darth Vader and he's trying to lure Luke Skywalker over to the dark side. And that mean style of coaching, you could think of it as like the dark side of the force, right? It's powerful. It gets results. But, you know, what cost? At what cost to you and to others does using this more dark style of coaching, what is the cost? And I think that this gets us to the gift, right? Gifts and making gifts to people are ways of cementing relationships. And they can be a kind of thing that a mentor does for somebody they're offering mentorship to. And yeah, the suit that Ted gave Nate starts looking pretty paltry in comparison to the gift of a shiny sports car. Sports car is definitely more expensive. And so I think we get the sense that as Nate's new mentor, Rupert is going to be more materialistic. It's going to be driven by a value system that is much closer aligned to money and power and influence. And I know we also want to talk about the all important sewer metaphor. What do you have to say about it? Yes, thank you. So that is the third thing I wanted to talk about. So I think you were calling this out in the recap that When Ted takes the team into the sewer, he is trying to establish a metaphor that he wants them to use as a touchstone for the way that they're going to cognitively reframe some of the things that they're encountering as a team. And I think it's a really powerful, it's not just a metaphor that he speaks. It's a metaphor, as I said, that's very embodied. They can see it. They can smell it. They can hear it. It's going to be something that really sticks with them. And metaphors are extremely powerful, as you said, for cognitive reframing. They're a way of seeing things differently, seeing anew. And in this particular case, it's a way of basically trying to share something that's really rooted in the senses across the group. It's a way of saying, we share this experience. We share this metaphor. It helps us think about things differently. Good metaphors are definitely a part of what leaders can do to help people re-see things in a shared way. And that's one of the things super crucial here is that Ted does not have to step in when everyone hears what Nate's saying in the locker room. Jamie is already there. And then he can just say, poope. And the entire team goes back to that moment and shares that metaphor 
shares that, hey, let's draw upon this. Let's draw upon each other's strengths. So it's a really powerful way of getting this image and this way of thinking into the minds of other in a shared way that is useful in a business context. I completely agree. And I think the fact that he took them there to see the sewer system is that extra layer of power that's going to make it more memorable, as you said, rather than just saying it, they experienced it. All right. Building on that, what is the metaphor really about? The sewer system is a system. And this brings us into this whole domain, which is so fascinating and interesting to talk about, of systems thinking. So there are many people who have studied systems and the wisdom that you can get from understanding how systems work in all kinds of different domains. In business, I think the person who's most associated with systems thinking is an author named Peter Senge, who wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline, which is a tome. It's thick, but it's fascinating what he's got to say about systems. So I just want to back out and just call one thing here, which is that if you can see the systems that are at play within your workplace, how A leads to B and how B leads to C and how different things influence each other, how different people influence each other, it really just gives you this above it kind of view where you can see how things function And then you can potentially find the area of leverage that allows you to change things, influence things for the better. And so let me just loop back here. I think that what Ted is trying to do with this metaphor is he's trying to ask the team to see themselves as a system. They're more than just individuals because they interact with each other. Because of that interplay between them, they have more power. And so He's looking at the dynamics of the group of how they influence each other at a systems level, both for good and for ill, they influence each other. But because they're a team and they're connected like a sewer system, they have the ability to draw on each other, to support each other. And things can leave the system if they don't serve the team. So like any system can relieve itself of elements, the sewer is allowing Ted to make this observation. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Nate and Keeley do in their new roles and how this sort of little bit scary mentorship of Nate by Rupert's going to play out. But I do wonder also, too, if the team is going to be able to keep up this sense of their ability to get rid of the poopay, to cast off the waste that's thrown their way, or are they going to get bound up in it again? Yeah. Will Richmond rise to the occasion? We don't know. And so that's our recap and our take on season three, episode one, Smells Like Mean Spirit. Coming up, we'll have season three, episode two, I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea. As we've noted, we are going to be shifting back and forth. We have a few episodes from season two to cover off on. But coming up, we will be speaking about season three, episode two. 